From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Republicans and Democrats have primary elections later this month. But it's not just partisans who'll vote. Colorado's largest voting bloc, Unaffiliateds, can take part in deciding races for governor, U.S. Senate, Congress, and more. We'll set up the stakes and explain Colorado's semi-open system as ballots go out in the mail. Then, an Arvada woman tracks down baby formula from all over the country for local parents who need it. If you know of any other moms or anything, send them our way to get some help, too. Later, an underrated green that grows wild. Most people would consider it a weed. They don't really give it much consideration. In the San Luis Valley, foraging for verdolaga, Spanish for purslane, how to spot and prepare it. Hi, this is Kate Celisti from Lyons, Colorado, and I am thrilled to be able to support CPR for the fabulous classical music that I just love and our wonderful coverage of both local and national news. This is Andrew in Boulder. I talk about your stories every day with friends, family, and people in my office and want to continue to support you guys as best I can. Members help make it all possible. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Midterm elections historically spell trouble for the party in charge, one reason Republicans are energized this year. But before they get to the general, candidates must survive the primary. And this year, candidates up and down the ballot represent the divide between factions of the GOP. By the way, those primary ballots start hitting the mail today. CPR Public Affairs Editor Megan Verlee is here. Hi, Megan. Hey, Ryan. And Eric Sonderman is a political columnist, former longtime public policy consultant. Hi, Eric. Good to be here, Ryan. Before we talk about the races, uh, let's get clear on the ballots themselves. Colorado is a vote-by-mail state. What do voters need to know about the process, Megan? Um, the ballots are mailed out, but returning them is really kind of a have-it-your-way process. Uh, so you can mail them back. Uh, you want to check and make sure you've got the right postage on them. Um, and don't do it too close to uh, election day. You want to get it in the mail with plenty of time for the, the post office to deliver it by June 28th. Uh, you can drop them in a drop box. Those start opening up uh, pretty soon. Or you can go to a vote center and either turn your ballot in there, or if you don't like using your mail ballot or you mess it up for some reason, you spill some coffee on it, uh, you can toss that out and go to a vote center and vote in person. Are there any statewide changes to the election process this time around? You know, the only one I can really think of is that the legislature did pass a law this year banning open carry of firearms at polling places. Uh, they, The Democrats who, who backed it argued that this would sort of strengthen voter intimidation laws, allow law enforcement to make cases uh, that might not be so clear cut. Republicans, uh, you know, really said it was stigmatizing legal gun owners and, and unnecessary. Uh, Colorado holds semi-open primaries, which mean that folks who are unaffiliated can vote in the Republican or Democratic races. Uh, How does that work once again? Well, this is the thing that I think uh, at this point we need to repeat almost every primary election, which is that uh, if you're unaffiliated, you're going to get two ballots. And you cannot fill out both of them. You can't even sort of fill out like Senate on one and governor on the other. Uh, You have to pick one party's primary to vote in 
vote that ballot and send in only one ballot uh, or else it will not count. It will be disqualified. If exactly. You, yeah. you wouldn't be like charged with voter fraud or anything. They just would toss your ballots but out. The point is you can't sample from both the Democratic and Republican ballots if you're unaffiliated. Pick one. Exactly. I was in California recently and they have like a completely open primary and it's just like 40 names with party affiliations and very tiny font in one giant box. So Colorado, uh, it's a little simpler because you have to pick a side. Okay, Eric Sonderman, what role do you think those unaffiliated voters will play and who gets nominated? I think they could play a key role. Uh, If you have a race that's otherwise going to be a 60-40 race, they're not going to make that much of a difference. But if you have a narrow race, whether it's in the Republican primary for governor, U.S. senator, secretary of state, which is a high-profile race this cycle, uh, unaffiliated voters uh, could tip it definitely one way or the other. I looked up the numbers this morning based on the latest voter registration. Unaffiliateds remain the largest voting bloc in Colorado, about 1.7 million. Then it's Democrats at just over a million and Republicans at about 956,000. So as I said, midterms tend to favor the party out of power, in this case, Republicans. Uh, But Eric, in your recent column, you say that it all depends on whom they nominate. Explain what you mean by that. Well, there's a history in Colorado, which, as both of you know, uh, has tilted distinctly blue over the better part of two decades here. And there are a number of contributing factors to that. But one is that Republicans have often nominated candidates who are regarded as somewhat outside the mainstream. And they make Republican hearts go pitter-patter in June of the year at the primary election. But then some of these candidates, when they get to November, are simply not viable candidates. They are not able to attract a majority of voters come November. We have seen that around the country with Republicans as well. In the recent primary in Pennsylvania, and I know we want to keep this discussion on Colorado, but in the recent primary in Pennsylvania, Republicans nominated a gubernatorial candidate where for an open seat that they should have a real shot at, particularly in a year that might be a Republican year. But this particular gubernatorial candidate in Pennsylvania is probably DOA or close to DOA in political terms. The issue in Colorado is going to be whether Republicans follow course, whether they nominate a slate of strong candidates who have a substantial chance, particularly if this year turns out to be the Republican year that you, Ryan, just presaged, or whether they go for the more extreme conservative wing of their party, which simply will not be palatable to enough Coloradans come November. And you say that there is a history of that that has been borne out in races, I think, of for Senate in the past, for instance. Uh, I'm curious, for unaffiliated voters, again, who are going to get both ballots, right, and have to choose... Uh, But for those who lean Democratic, do you think they're actually more likely to return a Republican ballot, given that's where the race is? Oh, even though per the numbers you just mentioned, Ryan, that there are obviously a a substantial plurality of unaffiliated in Colorado, but then then the largest of the two parties are Democrats and Republicans trail somewhat. I fully anticipate that there'll be more Republican ballots cast in this primary than there will be Democratic ballots, simply because there's more action on the Republican side. I am one example out of the 1.7 million unaffiliated voters in this state. 
and I fully intend to cast a Republican ballot simply because they have the more interesting and consequential races here. Democrats have a few down-ballot races of, of interest for various state legislative seats, etc. But the Republicans, from top to bottom, there's a primary for governor, high-stakes primary for governor, high-stakes primary for the U.S. Senate nomination, for the nomination for Secretary of State, and in a number of the congressional districts, including the new 8th Congressional District, up in the northern suburbs of Denver. You know, it's fascinating. I remember when Colorado was debating semi-open primaries like this, the idea, Megan, was that it would be a moderating force, right? You'd get more people participating in a Democratic or Republican primary, and therefore it would be a sort of middle-of-the-road experience. Has that been borne out? Um, I think that's a really interesting question that is really going to be put to the test this year uh-huh. because, as Eric is saying, the a lot of the major top-of-the-ticket primaries have a very conservative candidate. Uh, in Senate, the example would be Ron Hanks, and a, and a candidate who is trying to appeal to the middle, that would be Joe O'Day in that primary. And... Uh, yeah, the, the the more moderate candidates are really hoping those unaffiliated voters come out for them. Uh, we've heard that from Don Quorum, who's running against Lauren Boebert in the Congressional District 3 primary. Um, they're not, say, you know, asking Democrats to, to unaffiliate and join their side, uh, but they are uh, working hard to, to talk to the unaffiliated. Uh, I think one really interesting uh, piece of analysis I saw also from another state, because in primaries you often look to see what's going on around the rest of the country to, to make a judgment here, yeah. is that Raffens the secretary of state in Georgia, probably made it through his primary because enough unaffiliated came. They found that a lot of the unaffiliated who voted for him had returned Democratic ballots in past primaries. So that suggests that they heard that message, that they might not really like Raffensperger, they might vote for somebody else in the general, but they wanted to make sure that the more moderate candidate made it to the general. And there are definitely campaigns in Colorado trying to follow that playbook. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. And today, primary ballots begin uh, hitting the mail. And uh, we are taking this opportunity to talk about uh, how those ballots work and about some of the themes uh, involved in the candidacies that you will be uh, voting for if you take part in these primaries. So is, is there any evidence, Eric, that like Democrats temporarily change their affiliation in hopes of playing a role in who Democratic candidates will run against in the general? I've heard of anecdotes of that, individual incidents. I don't think that is probably so widespread as okay. to be statistically significant. I think what is significant is what Megan was just talking about, which is unaffiliated voters who, not each and every one, but as a mass, tend perhaps somewhat more toward the political middle. And in this case, voting in the Republican primary uh, coming up later this month. Uh, And uh, that was one of the stated intentions, Ryan, behind the measures that we had on our ballot a number of years ago to allow unaffiliated to participate in Colorado primaries without having to formally affiliate with either party. One of the stated intentions, and I fully endorsed it, was to somewhat at the margins drive politics a little bit further toward the center, to, to a reaction to this excessive toxic polarization that we have in this country. Which, as Megan said, might be tested this 
cycle. Former President Donald Trump has positioned himself as something of a kingmaker when it comes to endorsements in primary races. And uh, the majority of those he's endorsed have gone on to win their nominations. The only endorsement uh, I note that he's made so far in Colorado is for incumbent Congressman Lauren Boebert in the third, uh, which includes Grand Junction, Pueblo. Do you think uh, his endorsements will make a difference in Colorado? I don't think they're as powerful in Colorado as they are in some other states. This is a state that has never all that much warmed to Donald Trump. Even when he was running for the first time in 2016, this was a Ted Cruz state, not a Donald Trump state. That said, within the Republican Party, particularly within the hardcore element of the Republican Party, he still clearly holds dominion. And his endorsement will send a signal. My question, Ryan, is whether he does endorse in some of these other races. Do we see a Donald Trump endorsement, for instance, of Tina Peters, the Mesa County clerk under indictment, et cetera, in her race for secretary of state? Do we see an endorsement of Ron Hanks that Megan uh, mentioned in the race for the U.S. Senate? Ron Hanks having been in Washington, not at the Capitol, but in Washington on January 6th. Does the former president weigh in on some of these races, as he's done in many, many other states, although you indicate that he has a strong track record of picking winners in these primaries, I think to be fair, he has also endorsed in a whole lot of races where the winner is obvious, which is a great great way (laughs) to build up your winning percentage. And we'll see if he actually participates in some of these closer races. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned Tina Peters running for secretary of state. uh, And, you know, she went to Mar-a-Lago, I think. She did. She was in Mar-a-Lago for the release of a uh, conspiracy theory movie about the 2020 election. Tina Peters, of course, the clerk who is currently under criminal indictment for breaching, allegedly breaching the security of her uh, office's voting machines. Uh, And that's one of those primaries where... if if unaffiliated voters have make a difference, it will probably be in that secretary of state's secretary of state primary where you have a former clerk, Pam Anderson, who's been very clear that she does believes in our election system, does not believe in in conspiracy theories, and is a great supporter of Colorado's uh, election system as it is. Uh, running against somebody who uh, whose main message is uh, these discredited theories of election fraud. And so uh, there you just have this very clear distinction, but it's a lower profile. While it's a, a high profile race this year, it's probably pretty low in voters' attention. So it'll be really interesting to see how many actually participate in it. Eric, you were at the Colorado GOP State Assembly in April, uh, where the discontent of the party was on full display. Uh, How much did the notion of voter fraud, which has largely been debunked, play a role in the conversations there? It played the dominant role that day in Colorado Springs back in in the middle of April. Uh, This was the collection of the five or 6,000 Republican delegates who are probably the hardest core of the hardcore members of that political party. In that case... You don't even have to make a case that the election was stolen. Among most of those delegates, it is simply a given. Now, do they represent the totality or even the majority of the Republican Party? A, I don't think so. B, we are about to test that in the primary coming up Mm -hmm. here in a matter of weeks. But among those delegates, uh, yes, Tina Peters was... uh, she was the flavor of the moment, along with Ron Hanks and some guy named Brandon. 
So I'm guy named Brandon. Okay. Uh, before we go, uh, Megan Verlai, I just want to point out that you can register to vote up to and including Election Day. In yeah. If you are listening to this and you are not yet registered to vote, uh, your time has not passed. Uh, it is a, a register and vote through Election Day system. I think you have up to about a week before Election Day to register and actually even still get a, a ballot in the mail, but you would have to return it in person. And is that true for the primaries, by the way? Yes. That is true for the primary and the general. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you both. Appreciate the time. You can say you're welcome. <laughs> Thank it's you for having us on, Ryan. To <laughs> Good to be here, Ryan. <laughs> CPR Public Affairs Editor Megan Verlee and political columnist Eric Sonderman. Ahead of the primary, by the way, we'll be speaking with the Republican candidates for governor and U.S. Senate. You're going to hear those conversations over the next few weeks right here. Still to come, an Arvada woman finds the right formula to help new mothers. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado is famous for its natural beauty, including the iconic maroon bells. The towering mountain peaks overlook a sea of quivering aspens and a stunning lake. Look around, you see why people love it. That's why they come. The claim is they're loving it to death. How land managers are trying to protect Colorado's natural wonders while keeping them accessible to the public. Story and lots of pictures at CPR.org. Families were already struggling to put food on the table, then a shortage of baby formula. We want to introduce you to one local person who's stepping in to help. So like this one is just a smaller can than the ones I have up on my desk. Julia Walker sorts through bags on the floor of her living room slash office in Arvada. You'd be amazed at how many different types of formulas there really are out there. These three grocery bags are full of donations from another community member who has been watching what we need and has been keeping an eye out. This box that's full of the Infamil actually just arrived today from Kansas. Walker used donations to buy that particular formula, which was listed on Facebook by a mom in Kansas, as you heard. Walker has made herself a link in the chain to get formula from stores or individuals who have it into the hands of people who really need it. Hi. Hi. I'm Celine. Hi, Celine. I have your formula right here. The requests also come through Facebook as direct messages or posted on her organization's page. It's called Hope, Connection, and Community. This is the bigger can of the formula. So this one we're doing every two weeks. But if for any reason you just can't find it or you're running short or you need help, just send a message again. And if we have it, we'll get you more because it's just more important to get them fed than not. You know what I mean? Um, If you know of any other moms or anything, send them our way to get some help too. Celine Rangel came all the way across the metro area from Aurora to pick this up for her eight-month-old, Isabella. I mean, for her milk, it's... I'll drive. I mean, I've driven far. But Julia Walker didn't start with baby formula. She got going in 2020 helping people who needed solid food early in the pandemic. And she is with us to tell us more about hope, connection, and community in Arvada. Julia, welcome to the program. Good morning. Thank you for having me. I understand this was all your son Jalen's idea. When he was 14, I guess it had something to do with how much he loves food he didn't, want, he didn't want to be on the radio today. So why don't you tell us uh, how this got started? Definitely. Uh, I've always actively had open communication with my son um, his whole life. 
And when we see big problems going on in the community, we always have conversation around what kind of impact can we make as individuals to help people? Because I always want him to always be considerate of others and learn how to pay it forward, you know, because we're one situation or one choice away from being in that exact same position Hmm. one day and might need help ourselves. So when COVID shut everything down and people were suddenly unable to work and not making an income, unemployment was not coming through immediately. Um, We had one of those conversations in our living room. And yes, my son is very food motivated at 14 years old. Uh, (laughs) That was the center of his world. So it made a lot of sense that when I asked him, how can we help? His suggestion was we should give people food. You know, because in his world, it's very important to eat and also recognizes that that's important for other people as well. So that's exactly what we did. We grabbed a little table that we had from years ago that we hadn't used and we grabbed some food out of our own cupboards and set off to an empty parking lot up at an elementary school and put food out and posted all over social media in our local neighborhood groups to invite people to come get something that they might need. But we also put it out there for the community to encourage them to come donate if they could afford to do so. And that's how we got started. Are you finding now in 2022 that people still need that sort of food assistance? Absolutely. Um, Although we have kind of dug ourselves out of the trenches of the COVID pandemic, um, we are faced with other economic challenges right now. Inflation, cost of living is astronomical. Prices are increasing in grocery stores. So what $20 could buy two years ago cannot buy today. And so we are actually seeing an increase in people needing help to get by. Is it true that you're gardening and then sharing the bounty as well? Yes, uh, this is our first year. Our food program is called Eat Well, Live Well, and we do direct grocery orders for families to pick up food at their stores based off lists that they submit. But another need is fresh produce. You know, produce and, and fruits are very expensive in the stores right now as well. So through Denver Urban Gardens, we purchased two garden plots and we went and planted a variety of vegetables that we will be growing this summer. And we've already made a list of families who have requested to receive support from our gardens. Um, So bi-weekly, as we hopefully our plants will produce enough, um, we will make baskets for each family to come pick up every two weeks. So that way we can also support with that fresh um, produce. How many people do you think you've helped over the last two years? Thousands. Thousands? Thousands. Um, Between our communal food table of how we got started, community events that we host. um, We've done a bike event where we collected 64 bikes, um, fixed them up. Some were new. Most of them were secondhand. um, And we matched them with kids in need throughout the community. So that way they would have a bike. Um, to encourage, you know, physical activity and getting outside and being kids for the summer. Uh, We have done holiday events. We have supported our local fire department. We have supported our local police departments. 
We have done um, the first Christmas, we did a tree of hope where community members could adopt children through our tree of hope and purchase Christmas presents for them. My goodness, I, I don't know where you find the time for all of this, because you you have a day job working for Jefferson County. So obviously, you know about the existing safety net, government programs, nonprofits. Uh, why, why then do you think your help, your approach is needed? With, with our organization, we do not have qualifying factors. There's no paperwork. Uh, there's no income limits. There's no invasive questioning in regards to why they are in need. The way that I have developed this organization is that if you say you have a need and you are asking for help, we're going to help you. It is one of the hardest things to swallow your pride and reach out Mm -hmm. and admit that you need help. Mm -hmm. It doesn't feel good. To add to that, I refuse to do it. Um, So that's very attractive to a lot of the families in our area that they know that they can just send a message in private and just say, hey, I need some help. I I need a little bit of support just to get to my next paycheck. I'm not going to make it. And all they hear is, "Okay, let me know what you need. And they get left with their their dignity and they're treated with respect and they don't have to fill out a bunch of paperwork. They don't have to send me proof that they're on any kind of government assistance. I don't need to see paycheck stumps. We just help. Well, and of course, uh, this grew into helping families pick up their own groceries at stores. And I think that speaks to this notion of dignity, this notion of, um, well, just acknowledging that someone wants to maintain that, even though they may be asking for assistance. Um, let, let's talk more about the baby formula. If you're just joining us, by the way, my guest is Julia Walker of Arvada, who helped create hope, connection, and community with her son. How did you get interested in being this like link in the baby formula chain, connecting people with formula? Well, through my own personal experience, I have a 13-month-old daughter. And when this was becoming pretty serious, we were starting to wean her off of her formula. And in order to do so, I needed just a little bit more formula to get her through the next week or so that we were planning to do this. And through my own experience, after visiting five stores, I could not find her formula on the shelf. And it became my reality that this was pretty serious. And so I was forced to abruptly put her on whole milk, which she didn't tolerate, and then just downright refused. I had to go to the toddler version of her formula. <clears throat> and we we found what worked, but it was a very long week, almost two weeks of trial and error with her. And while I was going through my own experience, I started getting messages through our organization's website from parents asking if we were assisting with formula Hmm. and it dawned on me oh boy I may not have planned to get involved with this but I'm I'm being called to do something because these families need help they reach out when they need it and I I need to step in and figure out what I can do so on a small scale 
I started seeking out formula and I could not find it until I found the Facebook group, which I was like, this is amazing. This is a great resource. I can find formula and get it into our community. Do you and, mean? Do you mean to say fa- Facebook Marketplace? Because I know you've you've made some purchases there, for instance, out of state and brought it to Colorado. So it's not Marketplace. It's actually called National Formula Search. Oh. And then there's another group called Where's Formula Dash Colorado, and all it's full of is parents looking for formula and other parents posting pictures of grocery stores and the shelves and showing parents what's available there to save them gas and time if that store is local to them and does not have what they need. And so I was able to track down what I needed based off of these photos in these Facebook groups that had developed in just a matter of days. And there were thousands of members in there suddenly because that's how big the need was. Um, Yep. You talk about the gas, the time. I mean, I think of Celine Rangel, who drove across town to pick up formula from you. You talked about going to five stores, and that's just such a tremendous investment of time and money. And uh, I want to thank you for sharing your story, Julia. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me today. Julia Walker lives in Arvada, where she has transformed her home into a baby formula matching service. Her organization, which also provides solid food, is called Hope Connection and Community. We'll have a link at CPR.org. Colorado Matters continues in just a bit with a plant that's a weed for some, a meal for others. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Every spring, as the snow melts, an angel emerges on a mountainside in the San Isabel National Forest. That's what some see in the large snowfield on the eastern face of Mount Chavano, a kneeling angel, wings outstretched. Some Native American legends say she was a princess who sacrificed herself to end a harsh drought, who comes back every year as the Angel of Chavano. As the angel melts in the summer heat, her tears flow down to the valley as life-giving water. Mount Chavano rises above Salida, just east of the Continental Divide. Named for a Ute war chief, it's the southernmost 14er in the Sawatch Range. At the northern end of that mountain range is another 14er, Mount of the Holy Cross, named for the shape of its snowfield. An angel and a cross in the heart of the Colorado Rockies. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio, with support from Sheets and Giggles. The story now of an underrated green. Most people would consider it a weed. They don't really give it much consideration. Esteban Salazar lives in the San Luis Valley, where he forages. He uses the term wild crafting, keeping his eyes peeled for rose hips and wild asparagus, and one plant that's particularly close to his heart, verdolaga, Spanish for purslane. It's definitely a low-growing plant. It's got kind of a fibrous 
I wouldn't call it a stalk. It doesn't really grow much more than a quarter, half inch uh, vertically. It grows horizontally over the surface, and it's got very distinct little flowers. They're round. I liken them to mouse ears. Salazar owes his love of natural ingredients and foraging for them to his grandmother, Cora Trujillo. She was taught this information from her own uh, maternal grandmother, who was a midwife and a uh, curandera of sorts, or a healer, if you will. Folks that were familiar with plants and processes, you know, these were the doctors of the frontier, if you will. She also taught him to cook with verdolaga, a.k.a. purslane. The way that my grandmother would prepare would be sautéed in a pan with chopped onions. Pork was often used in it. I wouldn't consider a staple in most people's diet and uh, modern culture. Um, Again, it's pretty overlooked and not really considered, but it's rich in vitamins and it's got good fiber. Vitamin C and magnesium in particular. As for the taste? The flavor of Verdologa, I would describe it as bitter. However, if you do cook it well, the bitterness is greatly reduced. I Just for grins, I took it down to the farmer's market many years ago. I had a table, and I was working with a uh, Peruvian woman who had some beautiful beets. I was weeding her garden and collected quite a bit of Verdologos, and of course, I had to prep it and clean it and, you know, package it in quantities that would you know, make a couple meals, it would be more appealing to the purchaser. And I had really limited success. I had a lot of old timers, you know, old Spanish people come by because they recognized them. We had good chats, but they really weren't interested in buying it. I think it, it just sparked memories from their childhood. But other people had questions about it. And, you know, the most, i uh, say, common observation was, you know, oh, that grows in my garden. I know you could eat that. So, I thought that was interesting. Verdolaga is not commonly found in stores. When he finds it in the wild, Salazar says he's careful not to over-harvest it. Once you're trained to spot purslane, he says, you start to see it all over. I've seen it in lawns, you know, on the fringes of lawns, where, you know, some invasive, non-native, pesky-type species tend to thrive. So it grows everywhere. And once you are familiar with it, you'll, you'll see it. He also sees his grandmother in these foods. She was a very, very good cook. And she had, a, still has in the estate home a beautiful cast iron cook stove. So as I got older and lived with her for some time, I would haul firewood for her. And, you know, it was just a joy to know that I brought the fuel that we were cooking on, making a pot of beans or breads or, or tortilla on the, on the top of the cast iron stove. The house was always warm, smelled of fresh food, chili, chicos, and beans. And if whether she knew you or not, and you came to her home, she would not let you leave without eating. <laughs> I love that. Even if you weren't hungry, I bet. <laughs> she would insist. She would insist. Esteban Salazar, who forages for purslane, Verdolaga, in the San Luis Valley, Find his family's recipe for verdolaga with spinach and bacon at CPR.org, where there's also a photo of him and his grandmother. We'll also link to a helpful Q&A if you're a first-time forager. Alexis Nicole Nelson, who's amassed quite a following on Instagram and TikTok, suggests a water and vinegar wash for your bounty 
and discusses the ethics of wildcrafting. Again, at CPR.org. And we'll be right back with poetry about carcasses and country singers. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. South Central Colorado could become the world's largest international dark sky reserve, protecting some 4,200 square miles of starry nights. This is done with lighting management plans. The main purpose is to mitigate light pollution, so making sure that light is pointed downwards instead of emanating into the sky. The story and a photo of the Milky Way over Southern Colorado are at CPR.org. Now for something that's both campy and profound. That's how I describe the poetry collection from Denver's Nikki Beer. It's called Real Phonies and Genuine Fakes. A pop image of Dolly Parton graces the cover. Beer has twice won the Colorado Book Award and is an associate English professor at CU Denver. We spoke in April. Welcome to the program, Nikki. Thank you so much for having me. Way to be campy and profound. Those are those are two things that are hard to do at the same time, and yet you manage. Your poems are like a cabinet of curiosities, and I just couldn't shake the feeling that you might collect things. Is that true? That is incredibly true. I have an extensive collection of animal skulls and bones around my house. I have a, a deer skull and bones, a skunk, beaver, and rabbit skulls. I have a wild boar skull, a warthog skull, pig's teeth, a pig's jaw, and a baby turtle skeleton. Wow. What do you think it is about these bones, these skeletons that speak to you? I think it's that I find the structure of bodies extraordinary and the fact that they're so hidden, right? But there's this wonderful beauty inside animal bodies and in our bodies in terms of, you know, the aesthetics of a rib cage or in the case of the deer skull, there's these beautiful fissures that knit the plates of the skull together that, you know, you know, if you get up close, they just look like almost like these beautiful little thin swirls of water. Hmm. And so there's something about beauty that's hidden that appeals to me. And and I think also in terms of how they relate to our ideas of mortality and how mortality can be a very frightening thing to think of. But if you actually look at the aesthetics of anatomy, there can be a lot of beauty in maybe things that we may fear. This leads, I think, right into a poem that is set at a historical museum in Colorado. And before you read it for us, set it up a bit. Yes. So this uh, poem was inspired by a visit I made with my best friend, Maya Garantz. She's an artist and a writer, and the book is dedicated to her. And this was a visit that we made to the Deer Trail Pioneer Historical Museum. In Deer Trail, Colorado. And so this is a poem about a certain specimen of taxidermy that I saw in the museum. Okay, and we'll let the poem do the talking. Thank you. (laughs) Two-headed taxidermied calf. I hated myself for pitying it nearly 30 years dead and alive for only a few hours, as if that could do any good. But there was something in its tender swirls of ochre hair that the amateur taxidermist couldn't quite make laughable. Yes, the eyes were badly shaped, but I almost believed them anyway. When they cut the mother open, 
Did the mouths bawl in unison or harmony? Did the lungs fill twice as fast? I tried to convince myself none of it was real, not even the notarized signatures of the rancher and vet, remembering that faking provenance is a hoax's easiest gamble. I thought of the days before the pills and the large stone my bad chemicals made for me to carry, a secret sideshow attraction to myself, the woman who smiles. Step right up and observe her perfect imitation of a person who doesn't want to die. Caesar was a twin, the other stillborn. They say he believed if he swept his arm across enough of the world, he'd finally catch the brother who'd abandoned him to dream alone in the dark. I reached past the display's blunted barbed wire to stroke one coarse flank. When the animal was dying, was it relieved it wasn't dying alone? Did all four eyes close at the same time, two final streams of milk breath leaking into the early prairie light? I lied before, about Caesar being born a twin. Sorry. I just wanted to see if I was still as good at it as I used to be, to see if I could still smooth a little poison over glass and polish it to a diverting flash, a mirror showing everything but itself. The story of a two-headed taxidermied calf in Deer Trail, Colorado. Did it take air in twice as fast? Was it glad it wasn't dying alone? And yet that poem is also about telling the truth and not telling the truth. It is. Um, this is probably the book in which I'm writing the most explicitly about my mental illness. I have anxiety and depression, and I've been on medication for these for over 10 years now. Um, but it is about a period in my life before dealing with these mental illnesses and feeling like I had to perform wellness and just constantly make people think I was okay. So that's part of what informs my interest in, in illusion and deception is often how it is necessary to survive. Not always healthy, but it is a mode that sometimes we default to just to get through our days. Hmm. I wondered as I read this collection, if you've thought about what you want to have done with your own body after death. Is that, a, is that something you give thought to? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I've, I've thought about cremation pretty much ever since I first learned that it was an option as a child. Not that I've you know, sat around in my childhood just thinking about <laughs> cremation all the time, uh, but this idea of being scattered rather than being buried. I love this idea of just sort of spreading out across the world and just sort of being taken where, you know, ever wind or water uh, might lead me. I, I love that idea. I don't love cemeteries. There's something about, I don't know, just the fixedness of them that I don't like the thought of for myself after death, that I just kind of want to be released and not be in any central place after I go. Because I do think that's probably what will happen to my spirit as well. So why not let a version of that happen to my body? Ah. <sighs> That scattering, that everywhereness. Exactly. And I think I take comfort when someone dies in thinking they're not anywhere, they're everywhere. So do I. I understand that you took your students to like an anatomy lab or 
a cadaver lab? Will, will you tell us this story? I did. So this was a trip that happened, a class trip that happened in 2016. And I went with my students from my senior poetry workshop to the Gross Anatomy Lab at the CU Anschutz Medical Campus. And this was facilitated with the help of Dr. Danielle Royer from the School of Medicine. And this was a chance for us as writers, as poets, to, you know, examine the substance of the human body in this context of the Gross Anatomy Lab. How was it? It was profoundly moving for myself and from what I heard my students as well. Being able to see the human body, you know, in various stages of dissection laid out was just an incredible gift. And uh, Dr. Royer, she refers to the donors as our silent teachers. And that really is what it felt like, that we had these bodies before us that were teaching us about ourselves in ways that, you know, we may have never had access to before. I mean, it's just an environment that strikes me as rife with imagery, rife with emotion. And it makes me think of the fact that you have a list of forbidden topics (laughs) for your poetry students. I do. I do. For my classes, generally, I don't allow them to write about pets unless they are truly exotic, like a mongoose or a llama. Okay. I don't allow them. If your student has a mongoose, it's a different call you should be making. Exactly. Exactly. I want to hear all about this. (laughs) (laughs) Um, In the class, anyway, they're not allowed to write about breakup poems, and they're not allowed to write about what I call I like, love, want him, her, them, but they, he, she doesn't like, love, want me. Um, you know, poems about unrequited desire and lust. Is it just too facile? It's part of my, I see part of my job as showing my students all the other things that poetry can be about besides the subjects that they default to, like breakups and unrequited love and puppies. Right. Poetry can be about... A two-headed taxidermied calf. Exactly. Or waiting in line at Walmart or about their anxiety or about an old pair of socks. And so driving them into, well, driving them, but but encouraging them, pushing them into areas that they may, may not immediately see as worthy uh, subjects of poetry. I want them to see that, yes, it is. Poetry is there for everything in their lives, not just the narrow uh, subject matter that they may assume. Mm, I think it's really good for poetry consumers as well just to remember how broad that world is. All right, one last poem, Nikki Beer, based on your family's love of Dolly Parton's amusement park, Dollywood. Yes, my in-laws are season ticket holders to Dollywood, which is in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. And, you know, this is a a very queer poem. And Tennessee is a state that has proved itself to not always be the most queer-friendly place and also passed some significant anti-LGBTQ legislation last year. Um, But this poem is a kind of fantasy scenario that exists only in my imagination. Okay, let's dive into your imagination. This is called uh, Drag Day at Dollywood. Uh, This poem is preceded with an epigraph from Dolly Parton, and she's talking about her drag impersonators. And she says, some of them look more like me than I do. (laughs) (laughs) They're good, in other words. Okay. Drag day at Dollywood. Blue beehives whirl and loopily ascend long paper wands. Candied apples smash into shades of vixen, strike me pink, 
cherries in the snow. Lame by the square mile ripples under the Tennessee sun. From a distance, the mountain sidewinder looks like a drunk, bejeweled caterpillar. The screams sound the same as on any other day. By closing time, 782 press-on nails will have been lost. A few contrarians bust out their best patsies or lorettas, dark bouffants stippling the deluge of blonde. Someone's great aunt comes as Kenny Rogers and strokes her beard like a newly adopted lapdog. A bus from Atlanta unleashes two dozen dollies in matching bowling jackets, gutter queens sprawled across their backs in lilac script. To relieve the boredom at the mystery mind line, someone hollers, When I say homo, you say sapiens. Homo, sapiens, homo, sapiens. Dollies line the perimeter of the bald eagle sanctuary, watching the raptors swoop stoically on the other side of the netted enclosure. They mate for life, Dolly exclaims, reading from Wikipedia on her phone. Aw, Dolly says. Ugh, says Dolly. A tall Dolly gives a short Dolly a piggyback ride through Jukebox Junction, making a laughing, lumbering chimera of polysatin and fringe. Dolly holds back Dolly's hair as she vomits purple slush and kettle corn into a bank of azaleas. Dolly, with weary patience, explains to Dolly why she can't pet her service dog. Dollies grasp turkey legs in their fists, tear flesh from bone. Thousands of pairs of Dolly lungs breathe in gasoline and grease, breathe out glitter. Dolly visits the restroom to check her wig and loses track of herself in the mirrors. Dolly drifts along an automated river, an undiagnosed tumor humming gently under her life jacket. Dolly holds a thumb and forefinger up to the setting sun, pinches it, and lovingly places it in Dolly's back pocket. Dolly, exhausted and sunburned, collapses onto a bench, rests her head on Dolly's breast, who rests her head on Dolly's breast, who rests her head on Dolly's breast, on Dolly's breast. Drag Day at Dollywood by Nikki Beer. Nikki, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. If you need a love that's true, need someone to stand by you, here I am. Oh, here I am. Here I am. <laughs> Denver poet Nikki Beer. She's been featured in The New Yorker and Best American Poetry. Her latest collection is called Real Phonies and Genuine Fakes. We spoke in April. Thanks for joining us today and to the wordsmiths on the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, and I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News and KRCC. Thanks for spending time with us.